0: Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Jacob, Brock, Griffin, Jonathan, Rotary Coast, Scuttlebutt. Matt, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Hartman, Gingrich, Lisa, Roland, Lancelot, Bigbeard, Ash, Willie P, Shant, Brian, Schmarls, Madame Anita Sparrow, Randy Savage, Buggy the Clown, Leslie the Spice Chonger, the Admiral Benbow, Misfit, Chair Cannon Monkey, Axios, Gunsway Sally, Pitlock, James, Four-Eyed Sloth, Artemis Kilmeister, The Sextant, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Scarlet Dawn, Hefe, Bull, Rum Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. We've been pretty laser-focused on Captain Kidd lately, and that's a trend that's going to continue today, but I don't want to give the impression that he was the only pirate making headlines in America. In the weeks before Lord Bellamont arrived in America, The other governors of the colonies were, well, you know when you were a kid and you had to clean the house before your parents got home? Or maybe you've got a girl coming over all of a sudden, so you're running around from room to room tossing dirty dishes under the sink and clothes into the hamper. Not that I know anything about either of those. But the governors of Rhode Island and New Jersey were rushing to get tough on crime before Bellamont arrived. In part, this was just because they didn't want to look bad in front of the new guy, and Bellamont was a big deal. He was an English lord, not some provincial. But there's also a certain undercurrent that we should mention here. There are obvious reasons that there was this initiative to get piracy under control. You know, pirates are bad. We should get rid of them. But there's also a deep political consideration in all of this. Let's look at New Jersey, for example. Since 1664, the province of New Jersey had been split down the middle into East and West Jersey. Now, it was still one province, one colony that had a single governor, but they were distinct. They had two separate assemblies. Their biggest difference, however, was religion. West Jersey, next to Pennsylvania, was Quaker country. East Jersey, much closer to Connecticut, was Puritan. Neither was Anglican, but the province of New Jersey had a codified freedom of religion in the Charter, which, as far as London was concerned, was super not okay. England was an Anglican nation. These religious dissidents were a serious concern for English officials, but the bigger problem were the political dissenters. King William looked across the Atlantic and saw a haven for Jacobites, Scottish supporters of the deposed King James II. Now, to me, it seems that the American colonies were less concerned with supporting King James, and more concerned with the same issues that would lead to the revolution in about 77 years' time. But I'm sure there were some Jacobites there. There were an awful lot of Scots in America, after all. Notably, the governor of New Jersey, a man named Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton was a popular figure in New Jersey and a Scot, but an act of Parliament in 1698 declared that, quote, no other than a natural-born subject of England could serve in any public post of trust or profit, End quote. So the Scottish Alexander Hamilton was kicked out of office. His replacement, a man named Jeremiah Bass, was less popular. He was Anglican and he was installed by the king. The Puritans didn't like that at all, but the bigger problem were the Quakers. They just kind of ignored him. When he traveled to West Jersey to meet with the Quaker leaders, he almost couldn't get a meeting with them. Eventually, he did, but they were cold and unwelcoming. They basically told him just to get on his horse, turn around, and ride back home, which he did. On his journey... Boss stopped at an inn where he met two gentlemen who told him about a pair of strangers that they'd seen in town. They were, quote, well-mounted, and they seemed suspicious due to their, quote, carriage and demeanor. As Mark G. Hanna writes in Pirate Nests and the Rise of the British Empire, quote, the gentlemen implied that the strangers were clad in a manner above their social station. End quote. The new governor left orders with the local magistrate to arrest these two men and continued on his journey. When word arrived that they had been arrested, boss was in for a shock. The two suspicious individuals were named William Merrick and John Elston, and they both confessed that they had been crewmen on board the Fancy. They were Henry Every's men. Apparently, they'd arrived in New Jersey back in 1696 with six other companions. All eight men had bought property in New Jersey with their plunder. But Boss was never able to track the other six men down. They bought property in Quaker country, and the Quakers just weren't going to help him out. An agent of the governor who was tasked with hunting down those six pirates would later say that the Quakers, quote, entertained the pirates, conveyed them from place to place, furnished them with provisions and liquors, given them intelligence, and now the greatest part of them are conveyed away in boats to Rhode Island. He continues, All the persons that I have employed in searching for and apprehending these pirates are abused and affronted, and called enemies to the country, for disturbing and hindering honest men." as they are pleased to call the pirates from bringing their money and settling amongst them. The agent concluded that these six Red Sea pirates were, quote, at liberty, for the Quakers will not suffer the governor to send them to jail, end quote. There was some drama over who should try these pirates. Boss wanted to try them in New Jersey. So he could claim their property the admiralty wanted them tried in london there was some back and forth but eventually the governor sent them on to lord bellamont who had just arrived in new york he decided to make them his problem and everybody knew that bellamont had an anti-pirate agenda but in a move that would give his political opponents a ton of ammunition to use against him Bellemont just let these two pirates, two of Henry Avery's men, he let them go. Bellemont said there was insufficient evidence to convict them, which is weird because they'd confessed, but they didn't have any plunder to prove that they had in fact been pirates. It was all tied up in land. There are a bunch of these kind of stories in 1698 and 1699. A couple of other fancy men were picked up in places like Jamestown, but they were always let off with a slap on the wrist, just a fine, usually. And then, of course, there were just the real small-timers, some pirates who were guilty of raiding a French cod-fishing boat. Usually, they weren't even hauled off to jail, just pay a fine and you're free to go. And that might seem odd, because Governor Bellamont was so focused on catching pirates. But he didn't want small-timers. Bellamont wanted big names. And here in 1699, with Thomas II dead and Henry Every disappeared, there was only one big name left. This is episode 275, I Have Orders to Seize You. I still believe, and I'm definitely in the minority here, Most of the people that I've read talked about this subject and had a different opinion, but I don't think that Lord Bellamont yet planned to arrest William Kidd. I think he knew it was a definite possibility. He was prepared for it. I think he may have even been leaning in that direction, but I don't think that he was nefariously drawing William Kidd into his web. Were that the case, I don't see why he wouldn't arrest William Kidd as soon as he stepped foot in Boston. Maybe he wanted to make sure he could get as much of William Kidd's treasure out of him as possible, but once he was in jail, they have ways of making you talk. Still, back in London, the Parliament was holding sessions in which the Tories just excoriated Lord Bellamont. The sun was shining and the Tories were making all kinds of political hay out of what really did look like a Whig conspiracy to fund and protect a notorious pirate. Reports of these sessions were filtering back to Bellamont, and he was feeling more and more pressure to make a big arrest. And Captain Kidd was right there. I don't think I've made any secrets about how this is going to end for Captain Kidd, but for now, Captain Kidd really thought that he had a chance here. At their first meeting, Captain Kidd was asked by Lord Bellomont to produce a number of documents regarding his voyage. Bellomont wanted a full accounting of the cargo. He also wanted a list of every crewman on board the adventure galley that made note of all 96 who had left his service for Cutlass Culliford. Those were easy. Finally, though, Lord Bellomont wanted a complete account of the voyage according to Captain Kidd. I'm going to read that account in full in a short supplemental to today's episode. It's worth a read since it's what Captain Kidd says Captain Kidd did, but it's full of stuff that we've mostly talked about already. For now, Captain Kidd still had to write it. That evening, the evening of July 3rd, 1699, Captain Kidd sat down with his wife Sarah and their lawyer to begin his draft, but he realized this was not going to be a short process. He had to, first of all, remember everything to relive his voyage as best he could. But then, he and Sarah had to parse through all of the details and figure out what to share with the governor. Captain Kidd was supposed to deliver those documents the following day, the 4th of July, at 5 p.m. But when 5 p.m. came, those documents were not yet ready. And that's crazy to expect him to do that in one day. That's a lot of writing to do in 24 hours. Instead, Captain Kidd appeared with five of his crewmen, all of whom had sailed with him on board the adventure galley. The five included Hugh Parrot, the gunner, Sam Arras, Abel Owen, the cook, English Smith, and Humphrey Clay. All five men were questioned separately, and there were plenty of people present to do that questioning. The Council of New York had arrived that day. Alongside the Council of Massachusetts, there were around two dozen men there to hear all of these depositions. But we find in this questioning a bit of a catch-22. All five men gave very similar statements. Their accounts mostly matched up. And on the one hand, you want their accounts to match up. You know, if they're telling the truth, their stories should be the same. But you don't want them to be too similar. When they all have the same talking points, when they even begin to use strikingly similar words, it starts to look like Captain Kidd had coached them beforehand. Which is precisely what happened. But when they were questioned more closely, their stories continued to mostly match up, even when the answers weren't particularly flattering to Captain Kidd. They all admitted that the ship had captured two Moorish vessels, one of which had been captained by a Dutchman, the other by an Englishman. That wasn't great for Captain Kidd, but they also agreed that he didn't want to capture those ships, that it had been the fault of the crew of the Adventure Galley, who forced him to. If I were Captain Kidd, I would be chiming in at this point that I had an excellent English crew when the Adventure Galley set out, a crew full of seasoned, trustworthy sailors. But then, before I even left English waters, the Navy came along and commandeered them, I would point out that I had to recruit from New York sailors, and we all know the kind of sailors that Ben Fletcher kept around, if I were going to complete the mission that you, Lord Bellamont, had given me. I don't know if this would be much of a defense, but it was true. Kidd had one arm tied behind his back before he left England, and two by the time he left America. Finally, though, Kidd had to stand before the two assembled assemblies. Lord Bellamont asked him to give his account again, which annoyed Captain Kidd. He was busy writing his account, which, as he said, would be ready tomorrow. He had, however, brought five witnesses to give their own testimonies. Could Bellamont wait another day? No. No, he could not. Captain Kidd was to testify here and now, and there was a tense moment here. Richard Zax describes this moment as Captain Kidd waiting for Lord Bellamont, you know, his patron, to give him some kind of guidance. Would it be possible for us to talk in private, my lord? But Bellamont wasn't just throwing him under the bus. He was driving the bus. and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities.
0: The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. Find the age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So, once again, in what felt like a much more formal setting than last time, Captain Kidd dictated the events of his voyage as best he could, as well as his estimated cargo. In any modern society, one which abides by the rule of law, this would be illegal. Kidd would be, or should be, keeping his mouth shut until he was before a judge and jury with a lawyer present. But in a pre-democratic society, where they still had lords who had actual power, and where the law was more of a suggestion, this was a clever move on Lord Bellamont's part. Kidd had to tell his story, and then he had to tell it again, and then he would have to present it in written form it, kept him from manufacturing a story that just made him look good. There were points he had made to Lord Bellamont and the assemblies of New York and Massachusetts. He could be caught up in any lies that he tried to tell. Once he had given his account, again, Lord Bellamont gave Captain Kidd some kind of weird instructions. He said that Captain Kidd was to return the next evening at five o'clock. But Lady Bellamont might want to take a carriage ride tomorrow, so Lord Bellamont might be gone. If so, Captain Kidd was to wait until the next day. Which is what happened. Captain Kidd spent that night and most of the next day furiously working on his account of the voyage. But when he arrived to speak with Lord Bellamont, Bellamont was not there thanks to a carriage ride. Now, I'm having a little bit of trouble constructing an exact timeline for all of this, but I think it's quite possible that Lord Bellamont was lying. At some point after Captain Kidd left here, Robert Livingston arrived at Lord Bellamont's door. It could have been the same night, or it could have been the next day, the day that Lady Bellamont just had to have a carriage ride. I think it's possible that Lord Bellamont made his final decision about how to deal with Captain Kidd on the 5th, the day that he was supposed to be on a carriage ride. In part, I think he may have made it because of how he was treated by Robert Livingston. You remember Robert Livingston, right? He's the guy that took Captain Kidd to England, who introduced him to all of the big bigwigs that would finance his voyage, the guy that facilitated the meeting between Captain Kidd and Lord Bellamont. Here in July 1699, he threatened the governor. He demanded that his original bond of ten thousand pounds be torn up and disposed of. He wanted his name removed from all of this Captain Kidd business. If Lord Bellamont refused to do so, Livingston said that he would ensure that the Adventure Prize would never make its way to America. Livingston was telling the governor that unless Bellamont erased his present from all of this, he would be out tens of thousands of pounds, maybe more, a huge amount of money. Bellamont was insulted by this, and he seems to have believed that it was Captain Kidd working in concert with Robert Livingston, that it was all some kind of plan they had. He said of this interaction, I thought this was such an impertinence in both Kidd and Livingston. But I don't think that's what was really happening here. I don't see why Captain Kidd would care if Robert Livingston was implicated, implicated in an event that Captain Kidd still believed and was trying to prove was perfectly legal. If Captain Kidd was going to try to extort Lord Bellamont, and to be fair, at this point he did have the power to try, wouldn't he have done it in favor of his own position rather than that of Livingston? I can't even say if Captain Kidd and Robert Livingston had communicated by this point. There's clearly some information that I don't have, but I'm not sure that information even properly exists. We're dealing with an account given by the governor versus one given by Livingston, and they don't match up. Either way, it doesn't appear that Captain Kidd knew about any of this with Robert Livingston yet. He was too busy writing his account of the voyage. There are a few things of worth to note about that account. As Daphne Giannacopoulos writes in The Pirate's Wife, It is safe to say that Sarah had a significant part in helping Kidd formulate a narrative that painted him in a favorable light as an innocent man who was a victim of his circumstances. Now, not all of the men who write about Captain Kidd give Sarah quite as much credit Richard Zacks even says that she was illiterate, which might be true, but it's kind of beside the point here. Regardless, they all acknowledge that Sarah was involved in the construction of this document. Captain Kidd just wasn't that clever, and it was very well constructed. It's hard to say how much of what Captain Kidd had to say was true, how much of it was slightly modified, and how much of it was just plain old false. To take any of it at face value would be naive, but there are a few glaring omissions in the account of Captain Kidd that we can take note of. For example, there's not a mention of the Lackative Islands, where the men of the Adventure Galley engaged in an orgy of rape and plunder and torture and murder. The bloody flag that Captain Kidd was reported to have flown, a, you know, a red buccaneer flag, that was never mentioned. That one, though, was probably just Commodore Warren lying to make Kidd look more like a pirate. There are a few others worthy of note, but we'll get to those in time. For now, Captain Kidd was still working on his account into the morning of the 6th of July. He was disturbed that morning by a knock at the door of Duncan Campbell's house, where Kidd and his family were staying. It was an agent of Lord Bellamont, asking Captain Kidd exactly where he thought he was. He was supposed to appear before the governor at 9 a.m. Kidd was a bit confused and dragged before Lord Bellamont. They were to meet at 5 p.m. That's what you said, right? That's what Captain Kidd believed. Bellamont, once again surrounded by assemblymen, informed Captain Kidd that it was 5 p.m. the day before. It was 9 a.m. today. Which was news to Captain Kidd. Nobody had told him that. Made him angry. All of this felt extremely unfair and underhanded. He was being treated like a criminal. It was like he was being jerked around. He was. He was short with Lord Bellamont, a bit agitated and he told the governor that he wasn't ready. Bellamont had asked him for, you know, a book, pages and pages of recollection, and he'd asked for it to be prepared in a few hours. It just wasn't enough, but Captain Kidd said that he could have it ready by 5 p.m. today. The Earl was displeased, but he gave Captain Kidd until 5. And I've got to be honest... If I were in Captain Kidd's shoes in this situation, I might just go ahead and run. All of this seems super weird. Maybe New Caledonia isn't that bad. If he didn't have a wife and kids to think about, I think Captain Kidd would have run. But he didn't. Instead, he went back to Duncan Campbell's house and fumed. He continued writing his account with Sarah at his side, but he didn't finish. You know that feeling. You've got, say, a boss who's a real piece of... and maybe they do something really unacceptable, just are a rude jerk to you. But you can't do anything about it. You just have to sit there and stew on it for hours for the rest of the day. And you're just getting angrier and angrier until there's a breaking point. You know, nothing actually happens there, but you just can't stop thinking about what a jerk they are. And you decide it's time to tell them off. Maybe you don't know that feeling. Maybe it's just me. Maybe Captain Kidd and I are alike in this respect. It's certainly not a healthy way to be. But that's what Kidd was doing. Trying to write his account, but just sitting there getting angrier and angrier. Thinking about Lord Bellamont and everything that he'd really like to say to him. And then all of a sudden, the manuscript still wasn't done. Sarah was helping him work on it. But all of a sudden, he gathered it all up and told Sarah he was going to present what he had to Lord Bellamont right now. You know, but it's not ready. Maybe you should wait. Kid didn't care about any of that. What he wanted was a moment to speak to Bellamont alone. He wanted to discuss all of this situation without prying eyes. And right now, it was about noon. He would be at lunch and probably alone. So Captain Kidd kissed his wife and his daughters and stormed out the door. And that walk must have really been something for Captain Kidd. Stomping down the streets of Boston, his thoughts raging with the injustice of all of this. Richard Zacks puts it particularly well. He gives a hypothetical account of what Kidd's inner monologue may have been, and he says, He came back. He came back. Didn't Bellamont understand that? Which is true, Captain Kidd, if he were a pirate, would have gone somewhere else, but he didn't. He came back and he stood before the governor and he was being treated like a pirate. It was awful. And he was going to go explain this to Lord Bellamont. What Captain Kidd did not know was that Lord Bellamont had made his decision. At their meeting earlier that morning, Kidd had seemed agitated. And in the hours since then, Lord Bellamont had issued a warrant for Captain Kidd's arrest. He ordered the Port Authority to prevent the St. Antonio from departing, and his magistrates prepared to arrest Captain Kidd and his men. Kidd didn't know that, but he was marching right to Lord Bellamont's door. He had a sword on his hip and a just furious look on his face. He looked like a man that was preparing to do violence and he was short-tempered and violent. Remember, he'd killed a man for questioning his rule on board the adventure galley. This did not go unnoticed. A young constable saw Captain Kidd barging toward the governor's house, and this was a man for whom he had just received arrest orders, a man who had a white knuckle grip on his sword hilt and murder in his eyes. So the constable went and grabbed someone else to help him subdue Captain Kidd if necessary and rushed after him. Before those two could reach Captain Kidd, however, Captain Kidd arrived at Lord Bellamont's house. He stomped up to the door, and Bellamont's manservant tried to stop him. You know, you can't go inside, sir, but Kidd just pushed him to the side and barged through the door. Standing in the foyer, Captain Kidd stopped and heard Lord Bellamont's voice coming from the dining room. He started toward the source when all of a sudden the constable arrived in the doorway behind him. He said, Captain Kidd, I have orders to seize you. Kidd ignored him and stalked to the door leading to Lord Bellamont. And then there he was, sitting on his chair, suffering from gout and stuffing his face. He was unable to move. But Lord Bellamont looked Captain Kidd right in the eyes and greeted him. Captain... For a moment, they stood there, frozen. William Kidd had one hand on his scabbard and another on his hilt, ready to draw. And if he did, Captain Kidd could have reached the governor with his sword drawn before anybody could do anything to stop him. And he could do whatever he wished with the governor, but he wouldn't make it out of there. The constable behind him asked Kidd politely to submit to his arrest like a gentleman. Captain Kidd continued to stand there, eyes locked on Lord Bellamont, but he loosened his grip on his hilt and finally turned toward the constable, who he allowed to lead him from the house. Captain Kidd submitted to his arrest. Next time, Captain Kidd in jail. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everyone who has recommended this show to your friends or family, and everybody who has left us a like. Without all of you, this wouldn't be possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like the Explorers Podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.